Welcome to this edition of Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. This is Emily Primo, assistant editor of Fraud Magazine, and I'm here with Kelly Todd of Forensic Strategic Solutions to discuss a vendor fraud at a large school district in North Carolina. Thank you for being with us here today, Kelly. Oh, thanks for having me. So you were brought into an off-the-book fraud scheme in a public school system in North Carolina to help investigators understand how the fraud happened. Can you tell us how the scheme was perpetrated, what actually happened? Sure. Uh, There were numerous employees of the transportation department of the school system, uh, including the department head and the bookkeeper that conspired with employees of an auto parts store. And the auto parts store submitted phony invoices to the school district to the tune of about $3.8 million. Whoa. (laughs) That's quite a lot. Yeah, it was. (laughs) How did they get involved with this particular um, auto parts store? You know, I'm not really certain what the connection was. I think it really amounted to, you know, one one of the problems or troubles, I think, in in governmental entities and school districts is use it or lose it mentality, and and talking about from a budgetary standpoint. And so I think that there, and that's what was happening in the transportation department. They had a large budget; they didn't need to use it all. And so with the submission of the phony invoices, they were able to go through their budget, keep and keep their the money in the budget for subsequent years. And and I think that the two, the employees of the school system and the employees of the auto parts store, just found a way to to collude and and do that together. So what did you tell the school system when you came in? Uh, what kind of preventive measures? they could have put in place to prevent this kind of fraud? I think you start first with a proactive audit policy. They only had one, this is a very large school system, they only had one internal auditor, which unfortunately in that large of a district, he really just only had time to focus on really acute issues. And and as I liken it to, you know, he, he ended up kind of chasing his you know, like a cat chasing his tail. So we made recommendations that they beef up their internal audit staff, use the, you know, proactive audit policies, conduct analytical procedures, you know, data mining to look for unusual or unexpected patterns in data, which would have certainly unearthed this fraud for sure. And then a risk-based audit plan, because one of the things that was happening in the district was the superintendents and the department heads were um, very, they influenced where the internal auditor was going to go and conduct his audit. And and of course, the the transportation department's not going to raise their hand and say, hey, we want you to come and audit us. So the transportation department hadn't been audited in a couple of years because of that. And then I think lastly was we suggested to them that they conduct surprise audits because they were also, before the internal auditor would go in and conduct his audits, they would let the, or notify the department two weeks ahead of time that the internal auditor would be coming in. So that certainly uh, allowed for the hiding of, of any wrongdoing. I hear that more and more when I talk to experts like you that surprise audits are a great tool to have in your bag because if people know that it can happen anytime, it's less likely that they're going to try to hide something because they don't know when it's going to happen. I think that's such a great tool for people to keep when they're trying to prevent fraud? Well, you know, and it's, it's a very simple tool. And I think sometimes we, there's a tendency to overlook the simple things. Because as long as you keep uh, employees guessing or, you know, thinking that somebody's looking over their shoulder and they don't know when to expect somebody to show up, I mean, that's a very simple deterrent to fraud. 
You mentioned that the superintendent or whomever wasn't going to just raise their hand and say, you know, come, come audit us. So does that then mean it's on the shoulders of the auditor to say this year, I'm going to internally say, I'm going to do this many audits and I'm going to do them at this time and they don't need to know about it, but I'll just show up and I'll do it. Typically, that would be on the shoulders of the internal audit department. We recommended that they do some kind of risk-based audit plan. Uh, You know, look at the district as a whole. Determine where their greatest risks are. Determine the number of audits they're going to do in a year. Rotate those regularly, not just continuing to go to the same place and ignoring others. So, yeah, but, I mean, it it does fall to the internal audit department. Do you happen to know how the scheme was uncovered? Yeah, this was interesting in that, you know, one of the things that we we always recommend, but we very, very rarely see it in practice, and that is requesting or recommending that in an accounts payable department that jobs are rotated. It so happened in the school district they did rotate clerks within their uh, accounts payable department, and they had just rotated the clerks. And now each clerk had uh, was in charge of, like, a certain portion of the alphabet. And so when they rotated the clerks, the one that picked up the auto parts store started noticing that hundreds of invoices were coming in daily from this same auto parts store. It looked very odd. I mean, why, why would hundreds of invoices come in from the same vendor on a daily basis? It was all happening towards the end of the fiscal year. And when, when the clerk began looking at the invoices, recognized that they were all falling just below the bid limit or the requirement for a PO, a purchase order, and um, that they were consecutive invoice numbers. So, you know, they raised, they raised their hand and said, wait a minute, there's something going on here. And that was the, that was the tip of the iceberg and how every you know how the fraud was ultimately investigated and they looked at the earlier clerks that took care of that motor parts store the reality was it wasn't that they were colluding in any way but it it ended up you know you you just become complacent when you're doing rote activities like accounts payable and so it can be a very valuable tool to do that rotation but a lot of people don't do it simply because it you know it gets a little complicated you have to teach somebody something new but obviously very valuable in this situation. What do you think was the biggest motivator for these perpetrators to commit these crimes? Do you think that they rationalized their actions in some way? Two things. I mentioned already kind of the use it or lose it mentality that can be uh, detrimental in a governmental budgetary kind of accounting. But I think also one of the really interesting things when we got into the school system and started doing our work, we noted that they had a a very positive tone at the top, and that was refreshing to see. We didn't expect that given what had gone on in the school system and this this huge fraud. But when we got and we went around to the various divisions of the school district, and you know we found the same thing: very positive attitudes. When we got to the transportation department, it was completely different. These these folks felt like they were the redheaded stepchildren of the school district. They'd been ignored. They're, you know, completely decentralized. They just weren't happy. And I think that that led to their rationalization of, you know what, we deserve more. We deserve better pay. We deserve more respect. We deserve more attention and, and that sort of thing. And a lot of what led to their rationalization. 
That's unfortunate, you know, that it can run so well in one part of the district, but completely fall apart in a, in a different area. One of their challenges, too, is that, and, the, and you see this in so many professions, is that, you know, the school districts are made up of educators. They're not made up of business people. So they're not focused on the accounting aspects and the budgetary aspects and, you know, and the potential risks of fraud. They're focused on what they're good at, and that is education. And so, you know, a lot of things get looked over, and, and but, you know, we see that in a lot of professions. Yeah, definitely. Do you know if any of the employees of the auto department were disgruntled as well? Because you mentioned earlier that in the transportation department that they were pretty disgruntled. The bookkeeper was disgruntled. She was unhappy with her job. She was unhappy with the pay she was receiving. And I think that made it much easier for the department head to include her and make the request of her that had to be done. I mean, she she had to collude with him uh, from the approval process to make this fraud work. And and he obviously, the department head obviously was able to hone in on that and take advantage of her. You mentioned that the budget was a use it or lose it type budget. If so, do you see that as a systemic problem for the school district? Is it something that could maybe have helped cause them to commit this type of crime? Well, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, in, in their, their budget was a use it or lose it. So if they had the budget uh, and they didn't use it in a particular year, the risk of them losing the ability to have that large of a budget in the next year existed. It would that, you know, the excess would go away. So there was the motivation to spend the money so that, hey, we can keep the budget for next year. We need to keep it this high because next year we are going to have these legitimate expenses. That's kind of the, the rationale that we have seen occur. And I think that, that here it was a very large motivating factor for the, for the employees in the, in the transportation department. It definitely provided them with an opportunity to collude for the phony invoices to be submitted to the district. So what kind of impact did this have on the school district? How would a government-run entity like this go about getting $3 million back? They did get the majority of the money back. The auto parts store actually refunds, not the right word, I guess, returned the, returned the lost <laughs> money. There were, there were actually seven people went to prison, five from the school district and two from the auto parts store. And most of those were required to pay restitution, but this fraud was more than 10 years ago now. But even as recent as 2011, the school system was attempting to get the restitution from the former employees. But as you can imagine, these people didn't have a lot of assets. So it's been very difficult for the school system to to get that money back from those individuals. But, you know, as far as the impact on the school system goes, it was really, you know, the loss of public trust. That was huge for them for quite a while. But that was one of the reasons that they brought us in was to provide some assurance to the public that there wasn't anything else similar occurring in the school system. Well, at least it sounds like after the fact, the correct steps were taken. It's pretty surprising to hear that seven people went to jail because it's so hit or miss in fraud cases, whether white-collar criminals will be punished for their crimes. And it just really seems like they took the 
right and necessary steps after the fraud happened. I mean, you rarely see the results that, that they received and the actions that they actually, you know, that they took by bringing us in, in that sort of thing. But I think that also speaks to, and I, I mentioned this before, that when we walked in, we were very surprised to see such a positive tone at the top in such a negative situation. And so I, I think that spoke very loudly of the school system as a whole. Well, that's good. What kind of red flags do you think auditors or fraud examiners should look for when they enter a school district, whether they're investigating a possible crime or just ensuring that the district is following correct policies? Number one, this being a fraud that was involved collusion, a lot of fraud examiners have a tendency to think that an off-the-book fraud like that doesn't necessarily show footprints within the school, you know, within the school system here, for example. But in reality, it, it does. Regardless of the fact that the that the kickback was off the books, there were numerous red flags in this situation, in the phony invoices and large increases in you know looking for favored vendors. For example, with this with this auto parts store, they went from about two hundred thousand dollars in one year to a million in the next, and three million in the next year. Astronomical increases doesn't mean that a fraud has occurred, but it sure, certainly should be looked at much deeper. And then, especially in school systems and governmental entities, there's typically you know purchase order limits, or you know some limit at which a purchase order has to be submitted for the purchase to be made. And in this situation, what we saw was that, you know, we looked, the the purchase order limit here was $2,500. And so you look just below that limit. And what we found was that almost 100% in two different years, one year it was 100%. And uh, the year before that, it was like 99.95% of the invoices submitted by this auto parts store were just under that bid limit or the requirement for the purchase order. So, you know, you you look at something like that, I mean, that's an enormous red flag. So any kind of data analytics uh, that can be done, you know, proactively to look for, you know, patterns that you wouldn't expect to exist, I think that's probably the largest thing, um, regardless of of whether it's a school system or governmental entity or anything else. I mean, those are the types of red flags in this kind of fraud that will more likely than not appear. So do you have any advice for fraud examiners that investigate phony invoice and kickback schemes? Proactive data analytics, uh, analytical procedures just to identify the red flags. I mean, they, it's probably the fastest way to the jugular, in my opinion. Keep your eyes open, look for the footprints, and uh, the fastest way there is through data analytics. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us. You can find more episodes on acfe.com slash podcast and in the iTunes store. This has been Emily Primo signing off.